Hello and welcome to Captivated Audience. My name is Marie Lundberg and I'm joined as always by Sam Sheen, my friend and professional colleague. Over to you, Sam. Thanks very much, Marie. And we are delighted to have a guest based in Stockholm today. Martin Walker, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you currently work in? Hello, Sam. Yes, my name is Martin Walker. Um, I am actually an independent management consultant and I live and work in Stockholm. I've been here in Sweden for 10 years. I was brought here by my Swedish wife after our daughter was born, so technically known as a love refugee. I transferred over here. I was with Deloitte at the time. I'd been with Deloitte in the UK for seven years and then came over here. Lasted three years with Deloitte before I went on to Nordea and joined Nordea for kind of a few years where I was head of business architecture, heading up a large data program. And then I went on to become chief information architect. I've worked in financial services most of my career, started off implementing sort of regulatory reporting projects, systems out in the Channel Islands, since they worked on a number of data-related projects, and then um, left Nordea in 2018 and tried doing a startup, setting up my own data catalogue business. And here I am now, kind of 10 years later from when I set foot in Stockholm first time around. What would you say is the biggest challenges for you being British, working and living in Stockholm? I found the first two years particularly difficult because even though the Swedes speak perfect English and by I speak terrible, Dalit Swedish, the culture is very different. And it's getting to understand that when a Swede sort of nods their head, it doesn't always mean yes, it means I've understood you. And I think the when you actually get to know the Swedes, there's a lot less BS and people say it as it is. But a lot of Swedes will sit there and and really would avoid the conflict and just sit and listen rather than challenge you. So kind of people are a lot more adverse to confrontation. So you have to get used to that. But once you get to know the Swede, you can build very close relationships. There's a different culture. So when I when I bring Brits over to work in projects here, the first thing I do is give them cultural training and get them to understand what it is like to work with the Nordics. And Sweden is obviously different to the other Nordic countries. That's another minefield in itself. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a great place to work. Let's roll back a little bit, Martin, because you talked about the previous roles you had with both Nordea and Deloitte, and you talked about business architecture. So can you just explain for folks who may not be familiar with what that was, what it entailed? Yeah, so business architecture is looking to defy what what the business is actually doing and what support IT needs to provide for the business. So it's to try and describe what sort of capabilities you need. So, for example, we may need to have a capability that manages our master data. We need to have an onboarding capability. We need a risk assessment capability. And then it's about how kind of what data flows between those different capabilities and understanding where the data flows are. So you understand that as part of a process, you start onboarding a customer and you go through an onboarding process and it sits in these systems. And then later on in the customer lifecycle, you may be looking at where you're then kind of reporting on the credit risk or the liquidity risk or the customer risk. And where does the data flow to get from A to B and trying to build up a bank around sort of a number of building blocks. But that sounds easier said than done. I can remember countless times and I'm revealing my age here, how many times I heard people say, oh, the systems aren't talking to each other as though it was some sort of alchemy in terms of how all their IT systems work. Why, why does that end up happening? 
It's tremendously complicated. It's more complex than most people can ever imagine. And I think it comes down, at the end of the day, it comes down to people because the knowledge sits with the people and systems that are implemented to fulfill functionality that people say they need. And the problem is one person's span of understanding or span of control is only so much. So that means that people have to speak to each other and decide what functionality should go where. And the challenge is that you have very few people who understand how all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle all fit together. So when you come and try and change that, it's tremendously complicated. And anyone who pretends otherwise is taking you for a ride. The hard thing is when going about any change project is just understanding how the current state works. I remember working on, on a project is in different industry in telecoms back in 2002 and it was implementing Sarbanes-Oxley 404 financial controls. And we followed a process for financial reporting. And I remember sitting with one person and saying, okay, you get this that contains a long list of sort of transactions. What do you do with that? And I said, the first thing we do is aggregate it. Okay, and what do you do then? Well, we then perform different calculations at an aggregate level, and then I send it on to the next person. And we spoke to the next person. So what do you do? And I said, well, the first thing I do is I allocate everything out because I get the data at the wrong level of granularity. So one person was aggregating all the data, and the next person was de-aggregating it. The problem is people don't speak to each other and they don't understand the overall flow of data. And when you're a, a digital business, which is what a bank is, that is what the, the bank is. It's data moving around and different people are doing different things to the data and, and then trying to work with what's the most appropriate source for my given challenge. And it's just like, well, which version of data should you work with? You've got, is it the right level of granularity? Is it the right timeliness? Does it have all the necessary data points I need? And it's just so, so complex to, to actually understand all of those different variables and to decide what source of data to use. So trying to change that is really hard. <laughs> and try then to audit it, and it's even harder, I would say. How do you establish and how do you verify that the data set that you're currently auditing is not tampered with? that it has the digital footprint that you're supposed to have and all the information that you need is there and it's not being corrupt in any kind of way. Absolutely, because again, when you aggregate data, you bring in data from different sources and you have dependencies on those sources. So if I get in my master data with my customer records from one direction and I get my transactions from the other, I can't process my transactions until I've got my master data because if I process my transactions, a new customer or a new counterparty may have turned up, which means the processing of those transactional records will fail. What ends up happening is you end up having a lot of manual loads because loads failed. And then you come back to your audit point. As soon as manual intervention takes place, there's an opportunity for corruption, either um, criminal corruption or system-based corruption where things go wrong. Again, when you get data coming from multiple places into a single point, you've got a lot of recipe for disaster. So auditing that and then trying to explain that to the auditors who don't have a great deep technical understanding is even more challenging. So for them to actually understand it all and come up with some sensible recommendations is hard. Martin, we had the privilege of having Dr. Ellison Ann Williams from Envale on a podcast earlier. 
and she talked about homomorphic encryption and the data security triad, the various states that data can be in if it's data at rest, in transit, or in use. In your opinion, is that what might be lacking in an organization, the understanding of that data can be in transit or in use? Again, a lot of banks work very much batch still, and that means that there's a lot of data at rest. The way that the world is trying to move towards is event-based processing. So as soon as data moves, it is then processed. Now, the challenge that you have if we turn to KYC is there are many systems that work in in a batch-based world. So if I'm trying to onboard a customer, for example, and I want to go and check against a corporate register to see whether um, the customer is who they say they are, then I may be waiting for the corporate registry to actually process the data that was delivered to them a week earlier. What do you do? Do you say, I'm sorry, customer, I can't onboard you into the bank because the data you've provided me is different to what is in the corporate register? Or do I have to have an exception process that says, okay, you've provided me with evidence that you've sent the update to the corporate register, but we recognize that they can take two months to process the record, and therefore I'm going to onboard you on trust, and then I need to have a follow-up process to make sure that I can reconcile what the customer told me with what is coming out two months later from the corporate register. So timing is everything. And back to motion versus rest and when the data moves is the real killer for for data processing. Martin, since we are on the topic of KYC, back in November last year at the ACAMS Nordic Symposium in Copenhagen, we had the pleasure of hearing you speak on the importance of data in relations just to KYC. Compliance people focus on the collection, as you just mentioned, the company registers as an example. But you were also explaining that from an automation perspective, that there is more to it. Can you unpack that for us, please? I've spent the last 18 months as interim CIO at the Nordic KYC Utility, which was a new joint venture between the six largest banks in the Nordics. And the objective of for the utility was to try and improve the quality of data for KYC, to make it more efficient for both the corporates who, who need to manage KYC, and to overall hopefully improve the the ability of the Nordic banks to tackle financial crime. And so we were looking at all of the new technologies that are out there and available to decide what should a new data platform look like. The big thing trying to automate something is that you need to manage as many edge cases or all the possible edge cases that you don't even think of when you're a compliance officer. To give you an example, if I want to go and have a look at a report from source one, which let's just say from the tax authorities, and I look at another report that is from the corporate registry, and I can see that in one address, they've put address street one, street two, town, city, and in the other one, they've gone street one, they've missed out street two, and they've just got city, and there's difference in cases, then they go, well, I can see that's clearly the same thing. Whereas if you're going to automate that, you need to write the business rules in a system to say, check street one, street two, street three, check town, and then look to strip out any spaces, look to convert to uppercase, and so the list goes on. So the effort to automate something that you just think of as being, well, this is straightforward for a human to look at and understand, is significant. So if you start looking at all the different data sources across all of the data points that you need to capture, there's significant effort that needs to go in to 
automating that work. Now, you hear about all these grant brilliant tools that are available. Kind of one example could be, I need to go into an annual report and find out where, who the beneficial owners are or who the shareholders are. And you can get tools, AI, that in theory can go in and try and find beneficial owners. In practice, the best they're going to do is a glorified find. Then you really need a, a, a human who can then look at the different intricacies of the, the data and actually transpose what does this really mean. When you start looking at KYC for large corporates, Yes, there's some automation that you can do, but a lot of it is having skilled people who are able to actually go in and interpret the data. Otherwise, you have to try and write a business rule for that. And that's really complicated again. I have a, a totally out there sort of question based on my past experience. I walked into a job and on the third day, I was told by the technology team that for the sake of installation, a new monitoring tool we'd purchased would not be screening the UBOs because it was just too difficult to collect the data about the beneficial owners. And it took some doing for our compliance team to get the IT team to understand uh, the ramifications from a compliance perspective. But it also made me realize we, we were probably both trying to achieve the same thing but didn't communicate well together. I'm sure you've had the same experience, but what advice would you give technology architects or programmers in order to create that productive relationship instead of locking horns with compliance when you've got this kind of a project? I think you've got to start off with a common understanding as to what you're collectively trying to achieve and then understand what are the blockers and they're getting a common understanding of what those blockers are. So one, one of the things that where I sort of, I'd say locked horns with some compliance people is around and legal people is around use of cloud because it's a highly contentious area. The regulators don't really kind of like it in certain places, but there are some areas where using cloud can give you a more secure, more robust solution than going for an on-prem solution. There are other places that you should just stay well, well away from. And I think it's about if you get the wrong compliance person, they will just say, no, computer says no, you can't do it. And if you get the wrong IT person, they'll just say, look, we're going to do it this way. We just need to do it this way. And it's about trying to get those critical individuals to be open-minded who can sit down and understand what the problem is and what the opportunities are, what the risks are, and to come up with a risk-based solution. When we're at KYC Utility, we work with some very good external lawyers um, one of one guy who used to work for the Swedish Information Commissioner's Office. And we're able to sit there and talk through in great detail about how we wanted the process to work. And he was able to say whether that would fit within GDPR or not. And we we're able to tailor the process accordingly to make sure that we had a GDPR compliant solution. And that really was a joint effort. And I think it's when you can get the chemistry of the people working together to come up with joint solutions, that's where you get success. Where you get heavy handedness coming from either side, whether it's the IT zealots saying, this is how it needs to work, or the compliant zealots saying, this is how it's not gonna work, that's where you end up with clashes and sort of disaster. So it's open-mindedness from both parties coming up with a common solution, rather than sort of, as I described, blue on blue friendly fire in re reference to the Iraq war where the, the, the Americans bombing the British troops are all there trying to <laughs> go against the same com common enemy. It sometimes feels like that with IT and compliance coming together. It's sort of friendly fire. 
And on that note, blue on blue, friendly fire, we end part one of this episode on Captivated Audience with our guest Martin Walker. Part two will be released in just a few days, so please stay tuned. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe.